This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. In the 1950s, Alan Jones was a kid growing up in the Bronx. By the 1970s, he'd been a drug dealer, an armed robber, a prison inmate, a prep school kid, and a professional basketball player. Today, Jones is a banker in Luxembourg. But as strange as Jones' life story may be, that story might not be the most interesting thing about his memoir, The Rat That Got Away. Jones co-authored that memoir with Fordham historian Mark Nazan. It's forthcoming from Fordham University Press. In The Rat That Got Away, Jones tells his story, but he also describes a world that we don't hear about very much in literature or in history. A multiracial, pre-urban renewal, wholesome South Bronx. Here today to talk about that world and about Jones' story is Mark Nazan. As well as being Alan Jones' co-author on The Rat That Got Away, Nazan's a professor of history and African-American studies at Fordham, and he's also the director of the Bronx African-American History Project. Nazan joined me in the studio earlier this week. Mark Nazan, welcome back. Oh, it's always good to be here. Now, tell me first how this book came to exist. About six years ago, I started doing oral histories with people who grew up in the Patterson Houses in the South Bronx because they believe that their story of growing up in in public housing contravened everybody's images of the South Bronx and public housing. And I had interviewed about 15 people, and one of them, Michael Singletary, told me, you really need to be in touch with my friend Alan Jones, who's living in Luxembourg. And he gave me his email address. I started an email correspondence with Alan, and we really hit it off because we were about the same age. We both grew up playing basketball, listening to rock and roll. And then I told him I had written this book, White Boy, a Memoir. He said, okay, I'm going to get the book. Uh, after he, About a week after he received it, he said to me, I want to write a memoir, and I'm going to call it The Rat That Got Away. How should I begin? Now, this he's maybe the hundredth person who, after read my book, said, I want to write a memoir, but I never discourage anybody. So I said, send me a sample chapter. So a few days later, I get this email, and I'm saying, oh, my God. This guy is a great storyteller. He had not only an ability to make you visualize the lived environment, he had a feeling for dialogue. And so I told him, keep writing. And he kept sending me chapters until we had maybe 15 or 16. Then all of a sudden, he sent me a chapter about his experience with heroin that was the single most harrowing description of people getting involved with drugs that I had ever read. And I started showing that chapter to friends, and several said, you know, Mark, you you can get this published. So tell me about our protagonist slash author. Okay. Alan Jones is one of these people who led a double life. Born in the Patterson houses in when when his parents first moved in there, brought up by parents who, you know, insisted he be very respectful, went to church, but by the time he's eight or nine years old, starts getting involved with tougher kids in the neighborhood. He's also very, very tall, so people start putting a basketball in his hand. So by the time he's 11 or 12, people are mentoring him in basketball, taking him to tournaments. Now, the other thing you have to remember is the setting. The first maybe 10, 12 years 
of public housing in the South Bronx from, let's say, 50 to 62. This is a place for upwardly mobile working class families of a lot of different you know, racial backgrounds. And it's safe, nurturing, supportive. Kids are getting in trouble, but they're not life-threatening kinds of trouble. Then, by the early 60s, a lot of the first families are moving out, poorer families are moving in, and all of a sudden, you start having much more serious problems. The, a heroin comes in. People are dying of overdoses. The, the violence and theft gets worse. So Alan, in his first years, has kind of lived in a pretty protected environment. And so what happens to Alan is when he doesn't make his high school basketball team, He's devastated. And when guys come up to him and say, start, you know, taking some heroin for us, he he listens. And then he gets drawn in not only to using, but selling. And then he squanders uh, some of the drugs and he has to pay back the dealer and he gets involved in armed robberies, which get him sent to Rikers Island. This is when he's 19 years old. He very luckily doesn't get sentenced to a long prison term. And when when that happens, he's then receptive to anything which will get him out of the Bronx. So he's, he starts connecting to some college guys from his neighborhood who in, introduce him to some coaches who get him a scholarship to a New England prep school called Cornwall Academy. So within three months... Out of getting out of Rikers Island, he's at a New England prep school. And he ends up getting a scholarship to a junior college called Montreat Anderson Junior College, which is where Billy Graham is located. So he ends up playing four years of college basketball without getting anywhere near a degree. When he doesn't make the NBA, he, he, he ends up making the decision to play pro basketball in Europe. This is in the 70s. He makes the decision that a black man from the South Bronx without a college degree in the United States is not going anywhere. So he decides to make a life for himself in Europe, which involves getting jobs outside basketball while he's still playing pro ball. And he does that first in France, then in Luxembourg, and when he get, ends up getting a few decent jobs in Luxembourg, he decides to settle there. And he's lived there for the last, uh, you know, 30 years, which is, there may be uh, 15 black people in Luxembourg, maybe there are 20 people in the whole country, I don't know. It's a, but he has a life that he would probably not have been able to live. I want to go back to his being a kid in the Patterson houses in the 50s. Tell me what that world was like. You may be in a better position than anyone because you know a ton about the Bronx. The Patterson Houses was was the first public housing project to open in the Bronx. The buildings were pretty tall. Probably the smallest were eight stories. Some of them were up to 15 stories. But there was a lot of play space and leisure space built in. In the original conception of public housing, the idea was that you would have public areas, you'd have a lot of grass, you'd have benches, you'd have schoolyards, some with basketball courts, some with you know monkey bars, so that the outdoor spaces would be incredibly inviting. These projects, first of all, you couldn't get in unless you were a two-parent family. 
most of whom the fathers were, were, were World War II veterans. Um, you were fined if you littered. You were fined if you walked on the grass. There was a, a project police force. There were social services. There were community centers. The public spaces were meticulous. And so there was a tremendous amount of pride in the people who moved in there. This was a step up from crowded tenements or rooming houses. Plus, people looked out for each other. You know, people kept their doors open. They were in and out of each other's houses. They took care of each other's kids. And it was very multiracial. For the past, this was probably the first time the black families ever lived in an integrated environment. And they found that the white families were quite friendly. At this time, 1950, the number of Puerto Rican families was relatively small. The, you know, the African-American group was much larger, but at least half of the families were white. So people remember this as an incredibly nurturing, supportive environment that was conducive to people you know, doing well in school, doing well in sports. People thought of this as a beautiful place for working class people to move. And that was, you know, Alan's earliest memories. Now, you know, these, you know, uh, this was still working class. The kids were tough. There was fighting. But it was sounded a lot like the neighborhood I grew up in Brooklyn, in Crown Heights, where, you know, I had a fight in my elementary school or in the schoolyard, but nobody got killed. And, you know, the, you were always being watched. You know, you, 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 the neighbor's eyes were upon you. So that's the Patterson Houses. But that changes because they had income requirements. And if you raised, moved above them, you had to move out. Plus, a lot of the people there had dreams of home ownership. So let's say in 10 years, half of the original families have moved out because either their incomes have gotten too high or they chose to purchase homes. And replacing them are families pushed out of other parts of New York by urban renewal. And... Those families are mostly not two-parent families. They're more troubled, and so the atmosphere starts to change by the early 60s. But the 50s, it's like a golden age. I'm going to ask you about that change in a minute, but I want to ask you also, what would, you know, in this time, in this place, what would a kid's life have been like? Okay, Alan says you get up in the morning and you're walking to school and you smell breakfast being cooked. You, it, it, you know, you, you smell, you know, that somebody might be making fresh donuts, eggs, or sausage. Um, and you also smell the newly cut grass and the flowers. And so you, you, you walk to school, and right, the school is right down the block. It's PS 18. It's, it's a racially mixed school, unlike... A lot of schools today, they leave plenty of time for recess. You have a nice schoolyard where you can play in. The kids get to play during the day. They get to go to gym. Sometimes they might even have an assembly where they get to sing. And uh, the education wasn't necessarily that exciting, but it, it was a good place to be. Then you go out and you start playing with your friends. And some of the play may be rough. You might play Ring Olivio, which is... Uh, you know, a tagging game where you often end up tackling people or Johnny and the Pony, or if you're girls, you're playing double Dutch. And then, you know, at six o'clock, they call you in for dinner. 
And then you have the other smells. You know, you corned beef and cabbage or uh, pot roast or chitlins or there's a Spanish family, uh, you know, arroz con pollo. And you go into the house and now television is on because these are all families who had television. And, you know, the family sits around watching television. The older kids may go back out, but that's a day. And then on Sunday, you go to church. And Alan's family were Catholic, and they were church-going. And Alan was actually religious as a kid and would go to two masses on Sunday, not one. So this it's a very idyllic life for a kid. You never had a sense there was any fear in this environment other than the fear maybe of lack of social acceptance of other kids or fear of your father if you did something bad and you're going to get smacked. Sounds like, again, it sounds a lot like how I grew up. You are listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. My guest on the show this morning is Fordham historian Mark Nason, and we're talking about the new book that Nason's co-authored with Alan Jones, The Rat That Got Away. That book tells the story of Jones' childhood and young adulthood in the Patterson House projects in the South Bronx, and it's forthcoming from Fordham University Press. Let's get back to that conversation. By the early 60s, though, things had started to change in the Patterson Houses, both from a larger historical perspective and as a kid would have experienced it. What was going on? Okay. As a kid, you would have noticed the halls aren't as clean. Sometimes you might smell urine in the elevator or the stairwell. You'd also might see guys shooting craps in the stairwell and passing around money. Then you might notice grown men nodding and scratching on the benches, you know, and which uh, you would have also noticed that the grounds aren't as clean. Then you might have started notice their packs of teenage boys kind of wandering around you know, from one section of the project to another, and they may be fighting with each other. And you're also noticing uh, that there aren't as many fathers around. So all of those things, you have a sense that it's dirtier. It's, it, it, it smells more. It isn't as well kept. There are people congregated during the day doing things that don't seem quite right. And there are broken men, uh, you know, on benches, and there are not as many fathers, you know, uh, uh, monitoring the behavior of everyone. Now, in the larger context, what's going on at this time? Why is the neighborhood changing? I think that you have the gradual transition from an industrial to post-industrial economy. A lot of the factory jobs are leaving New York, and the vast majority of Um, the men who were in the Patterson houses, particularly the black men, were working in factories or or working in warehouses or doing deliveries and somehow connected to that blue-collar economy. There were almost no black men there who had any any college education. You know, maybe a few people worked in the post office. So the economic niche that allowed black fathers to support their families was, was diminishing. 
At the same time, there's this ferocious urban renewal program taking place all over Manhattan, including down, you know, Lincoln Center, around Columbia. Large numbers of poor people are being displaced, and they're moving to, into public housing. And these families, many of them are in public assistance, and the, the job ladder isn't there for them. The combination of the jobs leaving and the poor families being pushed in means now you start to become the South Bronx, as people see it now. By the early 60s, you start to have a concentration of poor people without the job ladder to get them out of poverty. And the people on the job ladder are buying homes or they're moving to these new, you know, subsidized co-ops, the Mitchell-Lama apartments like Co-op City or, you know, the the Sedgwick place where Cool Herc spun. But the people moving in are people with no options, and it changes the atmosphere, and the jobs are leaving. And then, you know, drugs are coming in, and then, you know, in the mid-'60s, the Vietnam War kicks in, and that takes away certain you know, numbers of young men, and when they return, they're not necessarily in in shape to become fathers and husbands, and also there's no jobs for them. So that's my kind of the larger picture. It's urban renewal, deindustrialization, and the pushing out of poor people from Manhattan into the outer boroughs. Why did heroin come in so strong at this time? I think that Drugs go where there's a market. In other words, where there were vulnerable neighborhoods, where there are concentrations of poverty, uh, where there were poor conditions, heroin was already established even in the early and mid-50s. What happens is you find a market here because the public housing suddenly becomes a zone of poverty and despair rather than a a place for upwardly mobile families and a place of hope and optimism. Wherever you're going to find despair, poverty, you know, it thrives on that for two reasons. One, because people are much more vulnerable to substance abuse when their lives, you know, don't have much going for it. But also the young men in those neighborhoods then see the drugs as a vehicle for economic opportunity, and they begin selling it and aggressively marketing it in their own neighborhoods, reaching more people than would otherwise be there. I mean, heroin appears as an opportunity for some and a tragedy for others. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. My guest on the show this morning is Mark Nazan. Nazan's a professor of history and African-American studies at Fordham, and he's the co-author with Alan Jones of the memoir The Rat That Got Away. That book's forthcoming from Fordham University Press. Just after the show this morning, it's Cityscape with George Bodarkey. That's ahead at 7.30. But first, let's hear the rest of my conversation with Mark Nason. We mentioned before that, um, that basketball is a huge part of Alan's life, and He wasn't the only one. One aspect of life in this neighborhood that was interesting to me and that was sort of a, not to say a revelation, but something I hadn't thought about before, was that there's this whole schoolyard basketball culture that exists. Tell me about that. I had never thought about that before. In New York City, there was a whole alternate prestige 
system for young men in large parts of Brooklyn, Queens, Harlem, and the Bronx through basketball. You had tremendous pride in the quality of play, and the older guys would instruct the younger men in this. So Allen was, happened to be in a place where not only was basketball a local institution, but you, you had professional players who were teaching the sport in the local elementary school. So, you know, you went to that place. That's like around the corner. It was a guy who played for the New York Knicks teaching you basketball. And there were all these great coaches. So it was like you're a young guy in this world where you're always trying to establish yourself. If you could get into this, you would have that street credibility. And then, and, and you, you know, you would also get the girls. That was part of the appeal. And it was very powerful. And people talked about it all the time. Yeah, it seemed like basketball was just, it wasn't just like something that if you were good at, it was cool. It was like, not only would it sort of get you into this whole world, but also that, I mean, at least in the case of Helen Jones, if he hadn't had basketball, he wouldn't have had the connections that made it possible for him to have this totally non-basketball related career. Right. Absolutely. I mean, he'd probably be dead. And I think people, there were, these coaches were aware of it. Alan Jones didn't have a father who could get him a high-paying job in construction, the way a lot of Italian or Irish kids. He didn't have a father who owned a small business like some of the, you know, the Jewish kids. He didn't have parents who had college educations that could guide him in such a way that he would be academically very successful. But people saw, okay, you have a black kid growing up here, if he's a nice kid, you know, if he's respectful, this sport is going to get him opportunities he would not normally have. It's a way of jumping over the racism that was so prevalent. And everybody was aware that black men didn't have the job opportunities that white men had, even in the, the same housing project. So basketball became, it, it, it was an economic vehicle, you know, and it was seen as such. And so get really good at this and you will have opportunities that, you know, you wouldn't otherwise have. One of the things that I also found interesting, and we've sort of touched on this, is about black New York at this time was that the Bronx and Brooklyn and Harlem are all just these totally different worlds. And they have this sort of interesting relationship with each other. Tell me about that. Oh, yes. People stayed in their area. If you were in in, in a black neighborhood in Brooklyn, you didn't go to the Bronx. Everybody might go to Harlem because Harlem was like the cultural capital. But if you were in Brooklyn, grew up in Brooklyn, was scared of black people from the Bronx, and black people from the Bronx was scared of black people from Brooklyn. It was very territorial. But I think one of the other things to remember also is, is that people didn't leave their own neighborhoods very much in general in the 50s in New York. You took the subway to the village. You took the subway to Times Square. Maybe you'd go to Coney Island, but you didn't go into, you you know, you stayed in your housing project. You stayed in your seven block radius. 
because not that you were going to get killed for getting up, but you were going to, if you're a guy and you're walking in a strange neighborhood, you're going to get questioned. That's the way it was. You might get beaten up. You might get run out. It wasn't like freedom of movement. And uh, projects like the Melrose Projects and the Patterson Houses had a rivalry. But also one side of the Patterson Houses might be fighting with the other side. And, the, and it, oh my God, you didn't go up to Fordham Road because there was a gang here called the Fordham Baldies that had everyone terrorized in the South Bronx. This was, you know, you if you were in the Patterson Houses in the 50s, you didn't go up to Fordham Road. If you were in Morrisania, you didn't come up here because the Fordham Baldies, and they wouldn't come down there. So, you know, there is this territoriality, and it's not just with black people, you know, it was pretty much you stayed in your neighborhood. Okay, so when you first heard of Alan Jones, you were, like, very excited about his story. Why was that? Um, To me, I don't think people have ever written about the Bronx in the 50s as a place where black and Latino families found a place of hope and refuge from crowded conditions in Harlem. The whole narrative of the Bronx has been that the Bronx was this wonderful place with Irish, Italian, and Jewish families, and then black and people and Puerto Rican people moved in and it all fell apart. But there was this 20-year period where black and Puerto Rican people moved to the Bronx and found a wonderful way of life for themselves. And that whole era, maybe from, let's say, 1940 to 1960, has been erased from the narratives of New York life or of Bronx life. So I saw an opportunity for someone to tell a story of the good times in black uh, Bronx life, not just tragedy. And and also, I think Alan Jones makes it clear that even when tragedy descended on these communities, it was contested. And that's not a story that you hear when talking about, quote, the South Bronx, public housing, black life in the Bronx. Okay, I have one more question, and I'll close with this. Tell me what the Patterson Houses have gone through since Alan Jones was growing up there. What what kind of a place are they today? I think that, one, they're, they're not kept very well. Like many large public housing projects, the windows are not in good repair. The elevators are in good repair. It isn't kept particularly clean. There have been a lot of drug issues in the Patterson Houses over the last 20 years. A lot of the young people are in gangs, the Crips, the Bloods, Latin Kings. Um, on the other hand, senior citizens still feel safe there because somehow there is a kind of civility, even among these tough young kids, regarding older people who live there. And it's a great location in terms of shopping. So the, the problem is, is poverty is the people there are very poor. They don't have much in the way of education. The job prospects in the area are very meager. So this is a concentration of poor people who they have decent shopping, they have decent transportation, 
The buildings have been let go some. But all in all, it's probably not a bad place to live compared to the option of living in tenements where families are packed to, you know, two and three families to a tenement. So although it isn't what it was, neither is it a free fire zone. I mean, it's a tough, poor area where the young people's prospects are are what poor people face anywhere in New York or anywhere in the country. And, you know, a lot depends on the national economy and the condition of the schools and on health care. But I would say this, it is not the worst place in New York City to live by any means at all because of the location. In other words, if you stuck this project, let's say, in Red Hook, where you don't have transportation, where you don't have shopping, it would be much rougher. But people have good transportation and good shopping. So all in all, it's not the worst place to live if you're poor. Well, Mark Nason is professor of African and African-American studies and history at Fordham, and he's also the director of the Bronx African-American History Project. His forthcoming book with Alan Jones is The Rat That Got Away. Mark Nason, thanks so much. Thank you. From WFUV, this has been Fordham Conversations. If you have any comments or questions about today's show, you can email us at fordhamconversations at wfuv.org. We would, of course, love to hear from you. Fordham Conversations is available as a podcast at WFUV.org. It's also in our audio archive, which you can also find on our website. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thank you for listening and have a fabulous weekend. This is WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org.